Hey, good morning, everybody. Great to see you guys here. I hope you've had a good week. Uh, I know for some of you, that's been true. Some of you have had a great week. Um, Maybe your great week started last Sunday when the Bengals beat the Bills. Uh, Maybe from that point on, uh, your week was just one big highlight reel, one win after another. That's, That's probably true. Some weeks are like that, right? But not every week is like that. Uh, for me personally, I'll be honest, this, this has been a tough week. And I'll tell you why, what I try to do when things are difficult. I try to look for God's blessings because they're always there. They're always there. And I'll tell you what I noticed this week. I noticed when times are tough, you're a lot more likely to pray. Have you seen that? This is when you realize how much you need God. So you're drawn to him. And when you're drawn to God, good things happen. When we pray, good things happen. And with that in mind, I have a a challenge for you. It's actually a challenge for our whole church. In the month of February, coming up in just a couple days, we're going to pray very intentionally every single day. And of course, we do this uh, every month in, in some way. Uh, you may know that we put out a prayer calendar every month. This calendar gives you something to pray for every day. And I encourage you to keep using that calendar. Uh, you can get it on our website, plumcreek.org prayer. We also have a printed version in the Beacon, which is our newsletter. But in addition to that, I have this special challenge. In the month of February, here's the deal. I know some of you are parents. Some of you are grandparents. If you're neither one of those, you probably have at least one person in your life that you care about. And if that's true, you've got some concerns because you know what this world is like. You know, kids growing up are surrounded by all kinds of negative stuff. From a spiritual perspective, there are so many toxic influences out there. At the same time, though, we have reasons to be optimistic about the up-and-coming generation because I'm seeing some amazing things. I'm seeing kids grow up with a strong faith. I'm seeing kids who grow up to serve Jesus and work for God's kingdom. You're going to see that next week when those Johnson students take over our worship service. But then, what do we do? How, How can we protect younger people from spiritual threats and then encourage them to live with a bold faith in Jesus. Well, we can certainly point them in that direction, but the truth is that task is beyond us. We need God's power to show up. And that's what this challenge is about. It's about praying for the next generation every day in the month of February. And I have a tool that can help us do this. It's a a resource uh, that was created by Luke Kipfer, who was a speaker at our Perspectives class a couple weeks ago. And this resource is called Scripture Prayers for Our Children. And the idea is really simple. You take a passage of Scripture and you pray this Scripture using the name of a particular young person that's on your heart. So I'll give you an example so you can see how this works. On this particular day, you take 2 Peter 3.18, and in that blank there, you just put in the younger person's name. So uh, let's say you're praying for someone named John. 
You just pray like this. You say, Lord, I pray that John would grow in the grace and knowledge of you, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To you be the glory both now and forever. Amen. So it's pretty simple, right? And I think this is so cool because you are literally praying God's word. And the word of God is powerful. So we can do this. And I'll tell you where you can find this guide. Uh, it's online. You can go to reverbnetwork.org SPFOC. Uh, that web address is also printed in your bulletin. You can also find it in the prayer calendar for February. But let's, let's pray for this next generation. We'll start this Wednesday, February 1st. And I appreciate you joining me in this. It's exciting to see Plum Creek growing, uh, getting serious about being a praying church. I'm seeing that, and thank you for that. Well, it's time to jump back into our big series called God's Kingdom Story. And uh, many of you know that we're taking several months to go through the big story of the Bible from creation to Christ. And here's the goal here. Uh, throughout this year, we want to know this story really well. We, we want to live it out, and we also want to share it with as many people as possible. And we're already in week four of this big series, so uh, let's, let's remember where we are and where we've been. In week one, we started not in the beginning, we started before the beginning. We talked about the Most High God, the eternal King who ha existed before the beginning of time. And then in week two, uh, we talked about creation. The, the birth of the universe, the beginning of the human race. And last week was about the fall. Adam and Eve sinned against God in the Garden of Eden, and God's good creation was broken. Now today, we're going to have, wrap up the, the final week of this mini-series within the bigger series. Today, we're going to talk about the flood, Noah's Ark. It's one of the most well-known stories in the whole Bible. It's uh, one of those Sunday school classics that gets told again and again and again. In fact, if you go to any random church in America and you go back to their nursery or their preschool area, there's a good chance you're going to see Noah's Ark on the wall. Uh, you've, you've probably seen that. Uh, usually, you got old Noah. He's standing in the boat. He's smiling. You, you got these happy animals sticking their heads out of the ark. And from one church to another, the specific animals may vary, except for giraffes. You can't have Noah's ark without giraffes. That's kind of an unwritten rule. But it's, it's interesting. Over the years, Noah's ark has become known as kind of a kid's story. But if you go back and you actually read the Bible, man, there are some adult themes in this story. So, some of it is really disturbing. I mean, the entire human race is wiped out with the exception of eight fortunate survivors. So this morning, I want to move away from the preschool version of Noah's Ark and look at what the Bible really says. And this week, I decided the best thing we can do is just read straight from Scripture. Now, I want you to prepare yourself, because this is not a short story. And I won't read the entire thing, but I am going to read a good chunk of it, so we have to stay focused here. And before I start reading, I have an assignment for you. It's, it's a special mission. As, you read, as I read, 
See what you notice. Look for one thing that jumps out at you. One thing that maybe uh, you have a question about. Are you ready? Here we go. We're going to start at Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. It says, This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So, Noah, make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. And this is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it, leaving below the roof an opening one cubit high all around. And put a door in the side of the ark. And make lower, middle, and upper decks. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish. But, Noah, I will establish my covenant with you. And you will enter the ark. You and your sons and your wife And your son's wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. And Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Okay, so how you doing? You're hanging with me here? I know this is a lot. We're not done yet, though. This is just the intermission. We're going to jump back in. And a quick review. Here's what's happened so far. God told Noah to build this enormous boat. He said, gather all these animals into the boat and then prepare for the worst flood in human history. And Noah did everything, just as God commanded So what happens next? Well, Genesis 7, verse 1. The Lord then said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. Seven days from now, I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, and I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came on the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Pairs of clean and unclean animals, of birds and of all creatures that move along the ground, male and female, came to Noah and entered the ark as God had commanded Noah. And after the seven days, the floodwaters came on the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, 
On that day, all the springs of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of the heavens were opened, and rain fell on the earth forty days and forty nights. On that very day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, together with his wife and the wives of his three sons, entered the ark. They had with them every wild animal according to its kind, all livestock according to their kinds, every creature that moves along the, along the ground according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, everything with wings. Pairs of all creatures that have the breath of life in them came to Noah and entered the ark. The animals going in were male and female of every living thing, as God had commanded Noah. Then the Lord shut him in. For 40 days, the flood kept coming on the earth. And as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth. And the ark floated on the surface of the water. Those waters rose greatly on the earth, and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 15 cubits. And every living thing that moved on land perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth, and all mankind. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. People and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. The waters flooded the earth for 150 days. All right, well, we'll stop right there. Uh, thanks for hanging, me, hanging with me on that. And we're, we're not done yet, but we'll take a break for a few minutes. And I want to stop and see if you remembered your mission. You were looking for one thing that stuck out to you, one thing that maybe you had forgotten or you've never seen it before or, or maybe a question that came up. Do you have it? I'd love to go around the room and, and hear from each one of you what you thought of, what you noticed, and maybe you can share that with someone later today. But for me... When I read a passage like this, what usually happens is I have a lot of questions. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Because if our hearts are open and we're willing to listen to whatever God has to say, he will use our questions to lead us to the truth. But I think many people are like me. You read this and you start wondering. You wonder things like, What's a cubit anyway? And some questions are kind of easy like that one. A cubit is the distance between your elbow and the tip of your middle finger. And, and for the average male, that's around 18 inches, which means the arc was somewhere between 450 and 500 feet long. Huge. It's about 50 feet high. And here in northern Kentucky, we have an advantage we don't have to imagine the, the size and scope of this thing. We can just drive over to the Ark Encounter and see it in person. So like I said, some questions are fairly easy to answer, but others are tougher, aren't they? For example, how is it possible that Noah could build this ginormous Ark using the limited technology of that time with the limited manpower 
that he had. I mean, you're talking eight people at the most working to build this thing. And then you got those animals. How, how did Noah get the animals to the ark? And then how did they fit inside? And then there's the flood itself. All kinds of questions about that. I've heard people say, is there even enough water on this planet to cover the earth to the extent that we just read here? And uh, I, I learned something this week that's kind of interesting, fun fact. Some people say, no, there's not enough water to do that. But just a few years ago, scientists discovered that it's very likely there are oceans of water hidden 400 miles underneath the surface of the earth. It's really cool. Go look it up. It's, it's amazing. It, it's likely that there's more water under the earth's crust than above it. So uh, lots of interesting things. Uh, we could go on and on here. And I'll tell you what I was tempted to do this week. I was tempted to go down the rabbit hole and try to answer uh, a lot of these questions. And I know in some cases, we can find some good answers. In other cases, we won't find satisfying answers. And I appreciate people who, who do research about this kind of thing. But I decided that this sermon is really not uh, about chasing every rabbit down every hole. But I do want to deal with one important question. Is the flood story just a myth? Or did it actually happen? I think this is an important question because the Bible does not present this story as a myth. It's presented as history. Not just here in the Old Testament, but also multiple times in the New Testament as well. In Matthew 24, even Jesus talks about the great flood as something that actually happened. So where does that leave us? Well, I'll tell you what often happens. Uh, many people try to interpret the Bible with a naturalistic approach. And what do I mean by that? Well, naturalism is the idea that our universe operates only by natural laws, natural forces. You've got to leave supernatural forces out of the equation. So in the case of Noah and the flood, uh, that means you look at nature, you look at science, you look at geological evidence, historical evidence, and from there you try to figure out if the biblical account is plausible based on the normal laws of nature. So is it possible to verify this story and other stories in the Bible using a naturalistic approach? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. And there are many different opinions that are held by sincere Christians, but I don't even want to go down that road. Instead, I want to take a big step back, and I want to ask this question. When it comes to the global flood in Genesis, is it possible that God worked some miracles here? Is it possible that at certain points in this story, God intervened in ways that defy the natural laws of the universe? Well, I'll go ahead and tell you, I believe that's exactly what happened. I believe the story of Noah and the flood is historical, and it's also miraculous. And I know that many people would disagree with my conclusion, because many people in our culture have an anti-supernatural bias. And I'm not picking on anybody when I say that. I certainly understand this. I, I have an illustration here. I brought along a rock with me. 
And I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to hold out this rock. And I want you to imagine, if I let go of this rock, what do you think would happen? It's going to drop right to the stage because of the natural law of gravity. But I want you to imagine something totally different. Let's say I let go of this rock, and instead of dropping, it floats all the way up to the ceiling. If that happened, would you assume that I just worked a miracle? No, you would not. You would assume that it was some kind of illusion, some kind of special effect. But now, what if I said, oh no, this really was a miracle. My, my little rock defied the law of gravity. If I said that very sincerely, would you believe me? No, you wouldn't. Which means you have an anti-supernatural bias. But if you don't believe that my little rock can fly... Why would you believe in Noah's big flood? Now, again, this is a very important issue because for several months here, we're telling God's kingdom story. And we need, to, we need to answer this foundational question. Is the story true or is it fiction? In a, in a culture with an anti-supernatural bias, how do we answer this question? Well, I'll give you my perspective. When you read the Bible, you encounter lots of miracles, not just here in Genesis. There are many, many miracles all over the Bible. And a miracle, by definition, defies scientific explanation. We don't have a scientific explanation for Jesus walking on water. We don't have a scientific explanation for Jesus rising from the dead. And the resurrection is a very good example because if Jesus did not rise from the dead, Christianity itself just collapses. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we have no hope. So what do we do here? I think the bigger question is this. In the history of the universe, have miracles really happened? Well, if you have an anti-supernatural bias... You might say no. You might say, no, I don't think uh, the universe has ever operated by anything but the, the normal, natural laws. However, I want to reiterate something that I said two weeks ago when we talked about creation. There is no naturalistic explanation for the existence of life. Science is great, but science can't tell you how life appeared. So at some point, we have to drop the anti-supernatural bias. It's just not sustainable. And, and there's a simple reason why. Life itself is a miracle. God intervened. He created life where there was no life. And there's no natural law that can explain how or why that happened. And if God performed that one massive miracle, he can perform any miracle right? I say it over and over again. God can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. And if he chooses to use the laws of nature, he can certainly do that because he wrote those laws. But also, he can suspend the laws of nature anytime he wants, whenever he deems necessary. So, there is a lot we could talk about here. But in the few minutes that we have left, I want to set aside all of those questions. And I want to read the conclusion of this story, and, and let's just allow God to speak to us through his word. 
Now, before I go back and and read the end of the story, let's remember the primary truths that we've learned over the last couple weeks, things we've seen in Genesis. Uh, We started with God himself. God is beyond our comprehension. We we try, and it's just not going to happen. We can't understand him. Our next primary truth is that God created our universe. And in the beginning, God's creation was good, Uh, no evil, no sin. And that includes people as well. Uh, All human beings were created in God's image. He put something of himself in each of us. Sadly, God's good creation was broken. That's what the fall was about. When Adam and Eve sinned, the world was broken. All suffering, all pain, all death entered this world because of sin. But that's not the end of the story, is not it? What was our next primary truth? We said that God is in the business of restoring what's broken. And this is awesome because this truth overrules the previous truth. That's a very, very good thing. However, in the story of Noah here, God has some other business to take care of before he brings that restoration. God uses judgment to correct a broken world. We saw this in Genesis chapter 7. We saw that every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. Not just animals, but people too. And this is another place where you can start to ask some tough questions. Why would a good God allow that to happen? Not just allow it to happen, but cause it to happen. And I know this this may seem pretty extreme, but the truth is it's actually right in line with several things we've talked about over the past few weeks. We've talked about God's character, his nature. In week one, I said there are two sides to God's character. It's kind of like a coin. On one side, God is love. That's absolutely true. His love for each one of us is crazy. On the other side of the coin, God is holy. He's completely just. And because of God's holiness and justice, he hates sin. Hates it. And sooner or later, sin must be punished. A good God can't just look the other way when we do wrong. And here, shortly before the flood took place, humanity had reached a place of absolute wickedness. We're talking total, consistent evil. So God said, that's it. Judgment has to come. And we need to be clear on this. It's not just an old thing. This still applies today. There are consequences to sin. And God wants us to learn from those consequences and turn back to him. But if we persist, the ultimate consequence of sin is death, eternal death, eternal separation from God. But that's not what God wants. The goal of the flood was not just to punish. It was a commitment to start over. And that's what this story is about. The ark is about a new beginning. Yes, God is holy and just, but God is love as well. That love is the other side of his character. If we turn to him and put our trust in him, he doesn't give us what we deserve. If we turn to him and put our trust in him, 
He's, he loves to give us mercy and grace and a new beginning. So let's go back and see the end of the story. Genesis chapter 8, and we'll start with verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. And he sent a wind over the earth, and the waters receded. Now the springs of the deep and the floodgates of the heavens had been closed, and the rain had stopped falling from the sky. The water receded steadily from the earth. And at the end of the 150 days, the water had gone down. And on the 17th day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. By the first day of the first month, Noah's 601st year, the water had dried up from the earth. Noah then removed the covering from the ark and saw that the surface of the ground was dry. And by the 27th day of the second month, the earth was completely dry. And then God said to Noah, come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. And bring out every kind of living creature that is with you. The birds, the animals, and all the creatures that move along the ground. So they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number on it. So Noah came out together with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives. And all the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground. And all the birds, everything that moves on land came out of the ark. One kind after another. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. And the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done." So this is that new beginning. God had cut wickedness from the earth in the same way that you cut out a malignant tumor. And then God makes this new start with Noah and his family. He makes an agreement. It's a covenant, actually. And first, God tells Noah and his family to get busy and reproduce. And then God says, he promises that he will never again destroy the earth with a flood. And he seals that promise in a strange and a beautiful way. God says, whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, which you and I have seen so many times, whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So this new beginning starts to sound like a happy ending, but unfortunately that's not the case. Uh, it's true that the ark was a new beginning, but the human race goes right back into brokenness. People continue to sin against God. People make a mess of this world once again. But don't forget that good news, that primary truth. God is in the business of restoring what's broken. And in the generations after Noah and his family, there are many new beginnings. We'll see a pattern repeat itself throughout God's kingdom story. It goes like this. Sin, brokenness, restoration. Sin, brokenness, restoration. 
When you look at the, the nation of Israel, you, you see that theme, that pattern more times than you can count. God's people brought judgment on themselves, but God did not let brokenness be the end of the story. Down the line, God brought a final new beginning. And that final new beginning comes through Jesus. Over in the New Testament, the Apostle Peter is talking about Jesus. And he explains that Jesus suffered and died on our behalf. The righteous one died for the unrighteous. This is in 1 Peter chapter 3, which you will read if you follow this week's scripture reading plan. But it's fascinating. Later in that same chapter, Peter mentions Noah. And he says that Noah and his family were saved through water. And then Peter compares uh, the waters of the flood to the waters of baptism. And, and do you see that comparison? Do you see how that works? When Noah and his family walked off the ark, they had been saved from death. And when someone has been baptized into Christ, they have been saved from eternal death. And when Noah and his family walked off the ark, they started a new life. And when someone has been baptized into Christ, they have begun an eternal life. So this is a powerful connection between two powerful stories. The ark was about a new beginning, but the final new beginning comes through Jesus. Many of us have experienced that. Got to see someone baptized just a few minutes ago over here. His name is Seth. And, and before the service started, uh, he, he said, I am so excited to start this life-changing relationship with Jesus. His enthusiasm was contagious because this new beginning is such an amazing thing. And it could be that you need that right now. You need to begin a life-changing relationship with Jesus. You know it. You, you need to be baptized into Christ. And maybe you've been dragging your feet on that. And if so, we want to help you make that decision. After service here, I will uh, be down front. You could stop by the Connection Cafe on your way back. Uh, we would love to talk with you about that. It could also be that you've previously made a commitment to follow Jesus. But things have not been going well recently. Maybe you've drifted away from God Maybe you've wandered into sin, or maybe you ran into sin, and you're seeing the consequences. Those consequences are getting scary, and you know it's time for a new beginning, to go back to your first love and say, Lord, I commit to you again. And if that's you, you need some support, and we'd love to pray with you. We'd love to, to see how we can help. So same thing, come see me, come see someone at the cafe. Uh, we'd love to help with that. The new beginning is for everyone. Let's pray. Father, there are so many times when we just don't understand. And I go back to what we read a few weeks ago. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Your ways are higher than our ways. So, Lord, keep us humble let us remember that we don't know better than you. When, when we have these questions, I pray that you would guide us to the truth, but I pray that you would also help us trust you even when we don't have the answers that we wish we had. Lord, I thank you for telling us what we need to know, for the truth of your word. 
and for offering us a new beginning even when we don't deserve it. Lord, I thank you for bringing restoration where there has been brokenness. And I pray for anyone who needs to find that today, that they will draw near to you and that you will be close to them and that your spirit and your power would do amazing things in their lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.